On this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we recap some of the highlights of the ASC Leadership Conference in Dallas, Texas, and report on a potential major issue related to medical supplies resulting from the coronavirus. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, a podcast for anyone interested in the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to ambulatory healthcare strategies have an edge. AHS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement, risk management, emergency and infection control programs, run their meetings, develop education programs, and always be prepared for surveys. Welcome to episode 86 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for February 7th, 2020, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and I'm here with John Gailey. Recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry, John is the author of a number of books about the industry and the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the industry leader in ASC regulatory and accreditation, governance, and quality improvement oversight. We just got back from Dallas last night. That's right. It was uh, beautiful in Dallas and mm-hmm. not so beautiful well, in Rochester. It was not that beautiful in Dallas when we first got That's there. True. It was, it was cold. like 30 degrees, but yeah. much okay. better than here. Yeah, we got back home, and then uh, I had to get the car from the airport, which was mm-hmm. encrusted in about an inch of ice. So that, <laughs> yes. that was not a fun uh, trip. And that was at 1 o'clock in the morning. So. Mm-hmm. But it was a great conference. We were at the uh, ASC Nurse Leadership Conference in Dallas, Texas, put on by our friends over at uh, Progressive Surgical Solutions. Uh, It was a two-day conference on uh, Thursday and Friday of this last week, February 6th and 7th. This is the first, uh, what appears to be an annual conference Mm -hmm. in ASC Nurse Leadership, and it was uh, was excellent. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about the various sessions, and we did interview a couple people that will have uh, some episodes in the future, but Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot to be learned, and you know, the focus on uh, nursing leadership was uh, particularly refreshing. That's not always a focus of these conferences. And this I thought was really good because they broke things down to make it really useful, really kind of goal oriented so that people would have some really concrete ideas to go back to their centers with. That's right. That's right. So I have a couple updates about the podcast. Uh, this last week, we hit 15,000 downloads, Sue. Oh, good. So, and that uh, that number is escalating, of course, as more and more uh, uh, listeners come on board. And during the uh, conference, I believe mm-hmm. we got some new listeners. So uh, welcome to all of our newest listeners that uh, came on board as a result of uh, learning about us during the Nurse Leadership Conference. I also want to give an update on our sponsors. Surgical Information Systems begins their sponsorship on uh, Monday, which is actually in two days, uh, with episode 
episode 87, Craig Veach, who is uh, retired from SIS, will uh, be interviewed uh, and talking about the technological changes that have occurred in the last 50 years at the ASC industry. So I already recorded that interview. It was excellent. It was a, a lot of fun to uh, kind of reminisce about things and, mm-hmm. and, and look at the major changes that have occurred in this industry over 50 years. And then we do have a new sponsor, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, which provides expense management services to practices and amateur surgery centers. In March, we're going to kick off their sponsorship with an episode on cost-cutting strategies. And that's a topic we really haven't talked about here. And I suspect our listeners will probably be very interested in learning some cost-cutting strategies that they can uh, apply right away in their surgery center. We'd also like to remind you that you can enhance your listening experience by becoming a member of the ASC Podcast. Members have a lot of uh, additional uh, content that's available to them, including uh, downloadable resources such as uh, information about the regulations, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments, other various forms. We also uh, give members uh, discounts on uh, my books, a discount on mock surveys. You also get to uh, interact with the podcast hosts. And if you are CASC certified, you uh, can also get AEUs uh, as a result of uh, listening to the episodes. So please consider becoming a member of the ASC podcast to enhance your experience here. Uh, And to do that, go to ASCpodcast.com. Sue, while we were in Dallas, a few stories broke about the coronavirus and some impacts that really have nothing to do directly with the virus itself, but kind of like what happened in Puerto Rico, we expect to see some uh, impacts on the medical supply chain. Can you lead off with one of the uh, the articles? Well, we've all been listening to the news and been concerned about the clinical aspects of the coronavirus. But what I hadn't realized is that China is the world's largest producer of active pharmaceutical ingredients. The finished products may be produced elsewhere, but China is a major piece of the supply chain. So because the end product producers have some inventory already shipped, this may not happen right away, but they're expecting there to be an effect in a few months from this, some some shortages, which of course, as we all know, we're dealing with shortages on a pretty regular basis anyway, so this right. may just it's make just it quite a bit that. worse. Yeah. And I saw in Modern Healthcare's OR manager that China is a major supplier of disposable medical devices such as syringes and gloves, um, also joint implants and MRI machines. And going back to the um, pharmaceutical, they said an estimated 80% of the active ingredients used to make medication are imported from China. So there's probably going to be some issues coming up. That's right. And uh, Wall Street Journal also broke an article about the coronavirus uh, indicating that there's going to be a big impact. Actually, there already is an impact mm-hmm. on the uh, medical mask market. Uh, Chinese officials have been buying up all the local supplies, prompting factories ev- elsewhere to ramp up. Uh, Chinese officials are buying up medical masks in the uh, the virus-wracked country from factories that typically supply hospitals around the world, mm-hmm. forcing manufacturers to boost global output and hospitals to ration supplies. Mm-hmm. So while we're losing supply, we're also increasing demand, all because of this virus. That's so. right. As a matter of fact, we were in the... Um, airport, uh, mm-hmm. quite a number of airports uh, during our trip to Dallas. And it was surprising to me the number of people that were wearing masks there, much higher than normal. Mm-hmm. So I think the the takeaway here is we have to be very uh, careful, uh, make sure we don't let our supply, I don't want people to start hoarding out there. Mm-hmm. We don't want to mm-hmm. uh, start a panic, but make sure that you don't bring your supply levels down to such a level that there's a danger of you running out of these supplies. So you might want to ramp them up just a little bit. Usually we encourage people to uh, try to keep their inventory levels low so they can keep their costs low, but this might not be the time to do that with Mm -hmm. uh, some of these things that would be coming out of uh, China. 
And in other news, uh, Steve Miller, who is the uh, chief operating officer for the ASC Association, is going to be leaving the ASC Association to join the Association of Organ Procurement Organizations in Vienna, Virginia, as its new chief executive officer. His last day at ASCA was uh, February 6th. In his uh, statement, he said, one of my guiding principles is a lesson my father taught me early in life. Always leave a place better than you found it. This attitude has manifested itself in my work through seeking to improve the organizations and environments in which I work. Miller said that at ASCA, that translates into a robust advocacy program, a renovated headquarters, and strong partnerships with external stakeholders. Uh, Miller had been with ASCA for a little over nine years, and he joined as the director of government and public affairs and was promoted to his present position after three and a half years. And I got to know Steve uh, actually uh, mostly in his prior role as the director of government and, and public affairs. He was great to work with. He's He is going to be missed, and but we are very excited about him and his new opportunity there. So uh, again, Steve Miller leaving ASCA after three and a half years as the chief operating officer. So let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about what we learned from the various sessions at the Nursing Leadership Conference. So, Sue, this was uh, an exciting conference in that it was the first year for this Mm -hmm. uh, type of conference focused solely on uh, nursing leadership, and it really was the brainchild of Progressive Surgical Solutions, and our friend Regina Bohr, who is the Senior Vice President and Executive Consultant uh, at Progressive Surgical Solutions, sat down and talked to us about what her goal was in putting the conference together and what she hoped that the uh, participants would uh, would mm-hmm. get out of the conference. Yep, and I'm hoping this will not be the last. I think they're planning one for next year, and I do hope that they succeed in carrying this on because this was a really useful conference. People seem very excited about it, too. And I know, as we were talking about, there are a lot of very young participants, well, not very young, but a lot of young participants, so it's very hopeful for the future. That's right. And what was also different about this conference compared to, uh, to many that we go to, and perhaps a lesson to conference mm-hmm. uh, designers, uh, was the extensive use of workshops. Yes. Uh, throughout the conference where you actually had an opportunity to sit down with fellow participants to mm-hmm. uh, practice some of the, the new tools that you were given. And people were encouraged to make concrete goals to take back to their centers. So we thought we'd kick off this section uh, with the interview that we had with Regina, who speaks not only about the goals, but also her first session, which was on the core pillars of leadership. Let's listen. So this is John Gailey, and I'm here with Sue and with Regina. Regina, thank you very much for inviting us to this conference. Oh, thank well, you thanks for, for being here. Yeah, it's great to be a sponsor of the first ever conference, and I do think you're going to be doing it again, aren't you? Uh, we sure plan to. Um, I were, we didn't. This was our first time out. It's something that I've really had a passion about for years, well over a decade. I feel it's so important for these nurses that are thrown into these leadership positions in surgery centers to get more training and development in leadership specifically, but also in other, touch on other areas like what we just talked about in the sort of financial realm that they just, again, they don't have the background, the training. I mean, unless somebody's taken them under their wing and really taught it to them, they don't know. And there was evidence of that in the room today with only a handful of people who have any involvement in their regular financial reporting. You know, what I found interesting is there's a lot of young people in that room. I mean, usually you come to these conferences and and nothing against our older nursing staff, right? I know. That always looks at me. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nothing against it, but I was excited about seeing younger people here because, of course, that's our future. And we know that a lot of the, the older nurses are coming toward the end of their career right, right now, especially, you know, this is our 50th anniversary of this industry. So, exactly. And a lot of the people that have uh, grown up, you know, tend to, tend to be getting to the point where they're going to be retiring. So that's Absolutely. Exciting. I mean, I uh, retirement's on my horizon, and I've spent a lot. Of, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think that crosses over many, many industries. My husband and I talk about it all the time. We spend a good percentage of our time mm-hmm. mentoring right, right. the next generation. But I'm just all about trying to give them the tools, the information, the resources that they need to empower them to do it better, right. even better than we did, right? Yeah. And there's so many more tools available now, which is wonderful. We've talked about this before that you either usually are thrown into it or you fall into it. You don't go to school to become a nurse leader at an ASC. So it's yeah. And unfortunately, really a lot, and sorry, Sue, not to cut okay. you off, but unfortunately also a lot of surgery center owners don't really appreciate mm-hmm. the importance and don't see the value in offering these kinds of education and training opportunities to their nursing leaders. They don't think twice about sending their practice administrators to the annual academy meeting or whatever it is. But when it comes to the surgery, I mean, we actually, we had two nurses who had to cancel as attendees here. I mean, they called in tears because they couldn't get staff to cover them. They said they would end up having to cover, close in OR that day. And their owners were like, you're not really yeah, serious. You're right. not going to leave, right? They don't understand everything that's involved in it. They don't even always know what, what the whole job entails. Exactly. Well, I think that is one of the other challenges that we find as somebody that, that was raised in the administrator, nurse manager, business office manager environment. Right. That is not the common situation anymore. We right. Have most of it if not most of our centers, you know, have nursing leaders who are expected to, to have all that. Maybe not the business office side, though. That's changing now, too. Uh, but they certainly have to have all that uh, regulatory and uh, nursing oversight as well as, you know, the administrative side of it. Oh, yeah. They're managing the staffing, the supplies, the vendors, the surgeons, the schedule, all of that. Right. And you're correct. And I don't think that most of the people in the, there were a few people in this room who are in the model that you were speaking about right. where they're like nurse administrators and they do manage, they have both, uh, accountability for both sides of the house. But more often than not, they don't. But I feel like for the clinical directors or, you know, nurse leaders in an organization not to have any involvement or visibility in this kind of financial information, you know, they're trying to operate in a vacuum. Yeah. It's, it's like you just said, how can you hold someone accountable for managing the supply budget and the staffing budget and everything when they never get any feedback? That's they never right. see the numbers. Now, unfortunately, Sue and I uh, arrived a little bit late. So did you ask... Uh, you know, the question of the audience as to who they were and what type of a mix you had here? Yeah, we, it, well, we have people here from 22 states, um, including Hawaii and someone from Puerto Rico. We do have, I think, a, a preponderance of ophthalmology centers. Yeah. I think partly because it's a big percentage of outpatient That's surgery, right. um, about 30 some percent, but also we just have kind of a big foot, foothold in our, you know, PSS does. So, I mean, I, I, you know, we have a lot of our, our clients that decided to come to the conference, yeah. but we have orthopedics, we have pain management, we have ENT, multi-specialty, GI. So, I mean, it, it does cover the gamut. Right. 
Uh, and just a full disclosure, uh, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies and PSS uh, have an ongoing uh, relationship. They work together very closely, especially in New York. Absolutely. Our audience knows that we have a business relationship in addition to participating in this. So when you put this conference together, what was your overall goal uh, with regard to the mix of of speakers that you have here? Because it's very uh, diverse. Well, you know, we did a survey. I mean, I've had a passion about it because I just feel like the clinical directors in these facilities are sort of the unsung heroes. I feel like it's a very undervalued position yeah. to way too often. And it's it's an ongoing frustration that I have because I mostly deal with the surgeon owners of these facilities, but then I also deal a lot with the clinical directors. And, you know, I mean, in an ASC, the nursing directors have to wear so many hats. They have to do IT, HR, compliance. Uh, I mean, you know, exactly. I mean, you name it. And we've had somebody say to us that when it's running smoothly, when they're doing their job really well, nobody thinks they're doing anything. They're just sitting in their office. When something goes wrong, though... They're always to blame. Right. You know, it's a tough position. It's a really tough position. And most people that get thrown into it don't have any formal training in management or leadership. Most directors of nursing don't have an MBA. A lot of them don't even have an MSN. So it's not like they've gotten that kind of training. And I just, my passion is to try to empower them with knowledge, resources, tools, number one, to really grow and develop in their leadership roles so that they can maximize their effectiveness in that role, but also to give them the kind of broad broader base of knowledge and information so that they can establish their credibility and command respect and literally have a seat at the table. I don't know if you heard, but my experience, like you, we visit hundreds of centers. The top performing centers have a collaborative management model with an engaged owner, a dynamic business ops director, and a dynamic clinical director. But there's a mutual respect and there's a great collaboration that goes on within that triangle. And that's my passion is trying to help these clinical directors understand that that really is what they need to aspire to and to try to give them the kind of tools and information that'll help them grow and develop to be in that triangle, you know? And to that point, Regina, you started off the uh, the conference by talking about the core pillars of leadership. A really great session, by the way. And one of the things I like, first of all, one of the words in, in our company name is strategies. Oh, there you, know, you go. And, and my, my master's degree is in uh, strategic planning. Oh, so yeah. I'm passionate about strategic planning. Uh, and you talked about the importance of having clearly defined core values. Oh, yeah. Which I, I just love hearing that. And also talking about goal setting. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of it, especially to get this message across to our nurses who, who are not taught this in school. Right. And the other thing is that, you know, when it comes to vision, values, strategy, realistically and practically speaking, if it's just the director of nursing who wants to address that, it's going to be really, it's going to fall on deaf ears, right? It's going to be, but at the very... But they can engage their staff. Exactly. I mean, maybe it doesn't come totally from the top. And I really do believe that it doesn't matter whatever level it is. I mean, it can even be, you know, if our listener is a nurse... Uh, working underneath the uh, nurse leader, you can start it at that level too. Absolutely, you need to do. absolutely. I mean that, but that's why we didn't spend an hour on it because right. the reality is, I know for a lot of these people, they can't really drive that as an organization-wide agenda. But to at least be exposed to it, to understand the importance and the relevance of it, of having a clear, set, distinct purpose, and even if you do nothing else, core values in an organization, that's something a nursing leader can sit down with their staff and they can bang out and collaborate and brainstorm and come up with core values. And it really helps align the team and behaviors and not only with each other, but with the larger organizational goals. I made the point because another one of my passions is how 
poorly most performance appraisal exercises are. But I think having a clearly defined core values posted Mm -hmm. in your lobby that everyone identifies with and relates to, that really helps you when you're trying to address aberrant behavior, you know, or behavior that's just not consistent with your core values. Yeah. And that's what you talked about is using the performance appraisals to further those core values to make sure everybody's aligned with a great conversation. And you are right. I mean, I, I think I've almost given up on performance appraisals in many environments because they are, they're actually counterproductive. They can uh, and be. sometimes they, they actually become dangerous because mm-hmm. they're, you know, nobody wants to spend the time to write them out properly. So then you exactly. end up with everybody having excellence and there's, it's really done simply because they have to pass the accreditation standards. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because we end up going in and working with facilities that are in trouble sometimes and kind of trying to turn them around. This, one of the facilities we're in right now pretty deeply when we got there. Every single person in the facility had a generic PA form. Everyone was excellent, all fives, da-da-da-da. And we had some real underperforming. I mean, we had to we had to chop some people like right off the bat for non-performance or underperformance. So we're getting excellent. Exactly. So it creates a really bad I mean, it's it's a problem. I mean, I think it's a risk management issue too. Especially, you know, that's my perspective coming from California where it's so litigious, especially in the labor law realm. Yeah. You ended your session, which I think is a good way to end this interview here by, uh, I think it'll, it'll be the way you're probably going to challenge everybody at the end of the conference, yeah. too, is challenging everybody to uh, you know try to determine the one thing that they can do to develop a culture of leadership in their organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And well, I think, you know, Janelle did a great job of covering emotional intelligence. I'm hoping the exposure to that, fortunately, there were more people in the room who had some knowledge of it, but the exposure to that and just some really good resources and tools to dig in. I think if nothing else, just going back and working with your staff to define your core values. I mean, I think you'll be amazed at how transformative that could be in your little center. And, you know, the big takeaway I wanted everybody to take is what I started with, with that Steve Jobs, you know, interview. It's like you can make an impact. Don't accept the status quo. Don't allow yourself to become defeated. I mean, there are certain roadblocks that, you know, as Donna said, you have no control over. If it's a non-starter, then as you said, go get another job. Go someplace where you can make an impact. But don't don't accept defeat. Strive for excellence and make an impact. And core values would be a great place to start with your team. Absolutely. And anybody can do that. Everybody in that room can do that. So what's up for next year? Well, <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking about it. Yeah. I mean, we're really pleased. This was our first time. We had no idea how this would go. We ended yeah. up having to turn people away because we had to make a commitment to the room a few weeks ago. And so, I mean, I would love to see us double the size of this conference next year. Yeah. And, you know, when we did our initial survey, we asked how many of you would come to a conference for leadership training. Right, right, right. And the response was overwhelming. And that then when we asked... If it also included some operations issues or compliance issues, would your center be more likely to send you? And even more people said yes. So we have kind of tried to intersperse some operations stuff and some leadership stuff stuff. That's very articulate. <laughs> but anyway, we've kind of we've kind of put it together. Um, and I think that based on the feedback, we're going to have great surveys and we hope to get great feedback from the participants this year. And we'll use that to guide us to plan the next one next year. But we're super excited and hope that we continue to get good feedback throughout the rest of the today and tomorrow. Absolutely. And we'll uh, reach out to our audience, make sure they're fully aware of your uh, conference next year. And of course, we're already on board, whatever, Yay. whatever you want. We're, Yay. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're a supporter for you. So that's awesome. Thank that, you so much. Thanks so much, Virginia. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And the next session that we attended was by Jonelle Archard, 
She spoke about emotional intelligence and the transformative leader. We had a chance to sit down and talk to her, and I found it very interesting. So we, I, I did. I, you know, it was it's uh, emotional intelligence is uh, not a very well known topic right now, and I thought uh, Janelle did a good job of introducing the topic to people that probably have never heard of it before, and mm-hmm. certainly not something that is very well known in the industry. And again, that was a bit of the theme here too, is that trying to uh, get us all out of our comfort zone mm-hmm. and introducing new topics, uh, especially when we did to talking about finance, uh, which mm-hmm. is the next session mm-hmm. after this. Yeah, but also giving us a very concrete way in which it can help you in your leadership role and in your everyday life and giving us some tools to put that into practice. So let's listen to uh, that interview. This is John Gale. I'm here with Sue and Janelle Archard. Uh, Janelle, you just did a session on emotional intelligence and the transformative leader. That's automatically going to scare some of the people out there. So can you first start by defining emotional intelligence and, and just making it real for our audience? So it's not as complicated as it sounds. The definition of emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. And basically what we're talking about is having a strong sense of self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and handling of relationships. And if you're able to master those concepts, it's the perfect foundation for becoming a transformative leader. And transformative leaders are able to inspire their staff through strong vision, passion, and motivation. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people think of this as not being a really concrete skill, but it's really can be a basis for any kind of relationship in your life or your job, and it can just make you better at everything that you're trying to deal with. So I think it's a really, a really interesting topic. Absolutely. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't something that you can just apply to business. You can apply it to your family life, interpersonal relationships. But the impact of emotional intelligence in nursing has been shown to empower through the management of emotion as a necessary leadership skill, supports the development of resident leaders. And a resident leader is a leader that is able to create a harmonious workplace among staff and the environment. Mm-hmm. And high EQ nurses are able to successfully bridge the gap between clinical staff and organizational needs. And that's a real challenge in today's healthcare workforce, Mm -hmm. is there seems to be a pretty large division between the administrative or business side and the clinical side. And if anyone's able to kind of take their skills and bridge that gap, we end up with a more productive workforce and a more productive organization. And I like what you were saying about taking some of these quizzes and kind of finding out, you know, where you sit on this scale so you can work on your strengths, your weaknesses, and and kind of see if there's areas you need to work on or just understand yourself better and your staff and how that interaction. Sure. And I, you know, I think the concept does seem kind of abstract, but Mm -hmm. when you go into these books like Emotional Intelligence Mm 2.0, where they give you this quiz or some of the online resources where you can access a free or, you know, bot quiz, the concepts become a lot more clear. And once you answer those questions, they're very straightforward questions that you answer about yourself. And the interpretation of those answers results in lots of feedback on how you can change the way you react to people and to your environment and even to yourself. We'll put some uh, links up on the website too. You gave a a lot of uh, great resources, including 
one about war, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, you would like, yeah, probably. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll do you know, the one thing I try to encourage nurses to do is look outside of the nursing literature yeah, yeah. for help. And so, you know, business literature is a great place, but the, the military, like I said in my yeah. talk, has a way of doing things in a very organized, thoughtful mm-hmm. way. Right. And so some of those books that I chose... Robert E. Lee book, yeah. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. And also the Harvard Business Review is a wealth of information on leadership yeah. and emotional mm-hmm. intelligence. And they offer, you know, a, a lot of information, not just from business resources, but from the social, social psychologists that developed emotional intelligence. So... And understanding that whole background, I think you can actually give some really concrete tips. Like you said, make sure to count to 10 if there's a situation that you may not respond to accurately. And everybody hears that, oh, count to 10, but... You gave some real science behind that, that there's really well, a reason why you, it is, you should and do that. It's a pathophysiologic response, mm-hmm. right? Your your body interprets information, and the first thing you do is um, you feel it before you think, yeah, right? Absolutely. So you need to count to 10 so that you can rationalize those feelings into mm-hmm. something that is going to be workable. And I think the big takeaway is respond, don't react. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. I know I have to catch a plane, so uh, thanks <laughs> yep. for giving us the time. Thank You're you. welcome. Yeah. Thanks. I think it's fair to say that uh, nurses really don't want to spend a lot of time talking about finance. I'd say that was true. <laughs> <laughs> but any nursing leadership conference really does eventually have to uh, talk about the financial perspective, especially in the amatory surgery industry. And mm-hmm. during the conference, Nancy Stevens had a discussion uh, with the nursing leaders about leading from a financial perspective. And I know we keep joking about this, and I am not terribly interested in finances, but it's a really important part, obviously, about the AC. And, and not all nurses feel the same way I do, so I don't want to. Well, and I think what we're finding, too, especially perhaps among our audience, is mm-hmm. that more and more uh, today, you're finding nursing leaders being called on to also be financial leaders, mm-hmm. uh, simply because, you know, many uh, smaller surgery centers really don't have an option there. And and so much of the costs that are incurred in a surgery center uh, really are under some level of control by the nursing staff. And she made some good points that if finances are part of your job, you have to really be brought into that. You have to be given access to these numbers. And and I think that's a big key. Like we say, maybe we're not as interested, but a lot of it just hasn't been part of our our job description before. Right. So we did have an opportunity to sit down with uh, Nancy uh, after her session. And uh, let's listen to that interview. So this is John Gailey. We're here at the Nursing Leadership Conference in Dallas, Texas. I'm here with Nancy Stevens from PSS. And Nancy, it is great to finally have an accountant on the show with me. I am usually surrounded by nurses. I'm sitting right next to one. Uh Um, And I just thought you did a great job in this presentation leading from a financial perspective. So, you know, this was a nursing conference. And as an accountant, what is the the big message you want to get across to the nurse managers? Of course, most of our audience are nurse managers also, to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. So what's the the big message you as an accountant want to get across that I have never been able to get across uh, as the host? Okay. Well, my big message is that they directly control and impact cash flow. And um, everything they do in their world is part of the presentation of a financial statement, right? So it's the cost per case, the type of cases, it's the efficiency of the ASC, which plays a big part in an ASC. It's all about efficiency. So it's their staff turnovers, it's um, their labor, mm-hmm. how well they're doing at that job. And when they have turnover or they're missing staff and they have overtime, that impacts cash flow. So just knowing that nurses really do impact the bottom line 
And a lot of times they're, um, they're not, they don't get a seat at the table. Right. Um, they don't get to read those financial statements. They're not actually explained anything. They don't have any input to them. And therefore, it's not an easy thing to do when you're being held accountable for something that you don't get to participate in or share or know the data. And um, just making them aware today, hopefully, of the simple things, even when it comes down to case mix and case volume, it, it is a financial data point, And you should know it and be aware of it and be able to explain why. You're having a good month, a bad month. So I like the way that you explained it in a way that helps the nurses kind of feel a part of it and feel mm -hmm. like we have some say in it and some, like you said, a seat at the table. So that, that was helpful. Great. Were you surprised when you asked the question as to how many people actually have access to financial statements? Um, no. You know, my gut feeling was that a lot of people don't. And, you know, for that purpose, I think that Physicians in general, they own a practice mm -hmm. and they don't share data among the staff there. So even to the surgery center world, they don't acknowledge people. And in general, surgery centers have much more highly credentialed and highly educated people, much more so than a practice. Mm -hmm. And they should feel comfortable sharing that. You know? Well, and, and the nurses have the potential for so much impact on the bottom line. If anything, exactly. the nurses have an ongoing daily contact with the doctors. Mm -hmm. They're touching all of the things that end up becoming an expense to the facility. They're the ones that are handing those expensive items to the doctors. And uh, the more they know right. about that, the better they can help. It should be tied to all the nurses' incentives, basically, in their pay and compensation. Right. They really should. Absolutely. Uh, I used to run an ophthalmology uh, practice also, and, and I know a lot of PSS's clients are ophthalmology. You told a story about a facility that had this break-even number that they had been given as part of the ability study. You want to tell mm -hmm. that story here? I think that was a great story. Yeah. Um, we had taken over this client after they split ways with their initial developer, and they had a very costly development project, and they were... I would say about 2.5 million in the hole. Mm -hmm. um, it was a beautiful facility, but it really wasn't built very well. And they basically were told that they had a break-even case volume of 120 cases per month. Mm -hmm. And that was the number, unfortunately, they were striving for, yeah. which is never a good thing. Became I, the, don't, uh, I don't think that's a good yeah. goal. <laughs> We didn't get in business to, to break even. Right. So I was trying to educate them on that. But when they sent me their case mix, I could tell right away just by looking at the case mix, the reason why they weren't even coming close to that break even was even though they were getting a volume, their percentage of low reimbursement case mix versus high reimbursement was just not favorable, right? So you always look for their highest revenue producing unit and you want that to be in the 75% or higher group in right. general. A case and if isn't it's always not, a case. A case isn't always a case. Yeah. So, you know, volume isn't always volume and getting them to understand that and really look at that surgical case count as simplistic as it is, it does tell a big story. So. Right. He also talked about cash flow, which nurses don't always feel like they have an impact on. But you, you told some stories, too, about the cash flow issue. Well, yeah. I mean, being a nurse and managing a whole team and trying to get them to have expectations of seeing patients, doing that efficiently, you're driving your team, you're making sure that they're on time and they're getting the doctor to stay on time and then their patients are happy. There's a lot that goes into that. And I think for them, understanding that the more efficient that they are impacts cash flow and the, the more productive you are, you know, when you do have a good month, wait generally a month or a month 
month and a half and see if you get that revenue in the bank. And then when you do, that's the time to ask for the raise. Right. It's not when you had a bad month and it's not two months after when the facility's really hurting for cash. Yeah. Um, so just knowing the industry, I think a little bit better in terms of, you know, when does money actually come in? I might be working hard today, but we're not going to see that money for 45 days. Right. Our biggest problem always seems to be the doctors. They cause our uh, challenges on an ongoing basis, and uh, the schedule is something that the nurses obviously have a huge impact on. Mm -hmm. And you talked uh, quite a bit, actually, about uh, the impact of the schedule mm -hmm. and the impact of the nurse's ability to control that schedule on the uh, the bottom line. Well, there's no one who knows better how a is besides the nurse, right? So a scheduler, a good scheduler, should be getting her input from that clinical person and ideally working with that person every single day. But, you know, there's all kinds of different settings and software that will say, how long does a cataract take, you know? And you can plug it in, but you have to plug in the right amount per doctor. And a nurse is the best person to sort of give that input. You know, how long does this doctor take? How healthy is this patient? And you really have to stack your cases in order of the health of the patient, right. the complexity of the surgery, and then the efficiency of the doctor. And there isn't a scheduler out there that's going to know all that data, but there's a nurse. Right. Um, and that's what I think is really important. And some of the cases where, you know, we refer to these clients, or I do as the Twilight Zone clients, those are the clients that are literally letting the physician's office scheduler do the surgery, believe it or not. And that person has very little idea right. of anything to do with surgery and should never be scheduling a case. So and a nurse shouldn't come in and get this disjointed day of um, cases and, you know, everything down to how many rooms th does the doctor really need? He might want to, but how many does he need? So I think there's so much of the presentation today that talks to collaborating, right? So you might have an accounting person, you might have your Nancy in your facility that you go to, but I can't do anything without you. Right. You know, I need your input. I need to know what this doctor is using in his case that's making him so expensive. I mean, I can look, but you probably know off the top of your head. You know, oh yeah, he likes these new drops. Well, it turns out those are 50 bucks. Right. And you actually made the point that uh, if, if there was one thing that, that your audience could, should take back home is that getting control over that schedule could probably be the most impactful thing that a, that a nurse could do in a leadership position. Yeah, yeah. So I can give you a good example. We went to a facility who had a, a supposed nursing shortage, right? They didn't have enough staff. They had... I'd say on a given payroll, somewhere between 30 to 40 hours in overtime, oh my you know, every two weeks. And um, it was because of the schedule and the yeah. way the schedule was set up was inefficient. And there was no way the doctors needed two rooms. They actually found that they got done their cases faster when we put them in just wow. one room. And now quite the opposite is true. We actually have to let go or push them to per diem in the same facility with the same yeah. case mix because we changed the schedule. So you have to look at that. You have to look at it and you have to get some input. I always like to ask, you know, because I interface more with the scheduler, I like to ask the scheduler, hey, how did the day go yesterday? When did the clinical staff leave? And usually that scheduler will say, I don't, I don't know. And I'm like, well, that's your job to know. Because you're scheduling the cases. So if you're, if they had a tough day and they didn't get home till six and they worked a 14 hour day, they're not going to be happy with you. 
<laughs> not me. They're not going to be happy with you. And then they, it, you know, just having them own it is big. So let's talk about block schedules mm-hmm. and the challenges of the block schedule. And then okay. you have this great story, which <laughs> you definitely have to add yeah. in with that. Yeah. Um, so on the block schedules, yeah, I, I mean, we just used an example of a facility with six ORs. They had high-producing doctors, and they all took their favorite time to do cases, and they had their blocks, and they were very comfortable. And in order for a 6OR facility to make money, you have to have a lot of volume. So we recruited physicians, and they were all excited because they were going to get that buy-in, that price per share, but nobody wanted to give up their block. And um, they knew this was coming. They just weren't ready for it. And it was sort of a a tough situation because they were producing, um, they were happy, but we had to sort of limit their blocks. And, you know, we decided the best way to have them fight it out was just to run down to the $1 store and buy a bunch of pool noodles. And then we went over to the liquor store and we got two six packs and we said, hey, here's the block schedule. We put it up on a big screen and we color coded it by doctor. And we said, you can have a beer, you hit yourself with a noodle, you can do whatever you want. But when we come back in a half an hour, one of you is going to compress your schedule. So, be resolved. Um, you know, it was nice because they, they could see the data in front of them. They could see mm-hmm. that they had to compress. Um, and I think just being able to sort of add a little laughter to the situation, yeah. they, you yeah, know, let their guard buckled. Down yeah. They're they, actually going to do something. Yeah. Right. So we managed to compress it and uh, okay. they all ended up happy. Okay. And one thing you had said is that whenever there's financial problems, mm-hmm. people always jump to the fact of, you know, their staffing. They think they have too many nurses or they, you know, just have yeah. too many people on staff. And you found that's usually not what's causing the problem. Yeah, unfortunately, this has been um, in the last, I'd say, six months. We've been brought into some really large ASCs um, with tons of manpower, even PE companies that own them. And we've been hired just for clinical staffing analysis. Mm-hmm. And they always want to cut full-time equivalents. So we get in, we ask all the numbers, and we ask for all the data, and I do the analysis. And what I'm finding is that when you look at their nursing hours per case and their FTEs based on their volume, they're not overstaffed, mm-hmm. right? So the only place you can sort of turn to is find out why do they think they're overstaffed and what's driving that is the bottom line Mm -hmm. you know the bottom line is they're not as profitable as they want to be so and I try to explain this to every owner or um, corporate partner we go into it doesn't matter that you can't you're controlling costs from the bottom you sometimes have to look at the top and I think that gets neglected is um, for some reason the billing or the billing company or the outsource company gets this pass. No one scrutinizes them. And it's a big problem out there with patient collections, high deductibles, even the, the like the premium lenses or the femto and the orifies. I mean, we found cases where there's over $120,000 in receivables because the doctors aren't paying their femto fees. Right. So you can't And nobody's following on. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at it from both aspects, bottom line and top line. Right. Well, and, and I think a comment that we probably both agree on with our clients, too, is that often the doctors are focusing on the expenses, whereas uh, if they spend a little bit more time or just brought one extra case, the whole issue dis, uh, you know, just disappears very quickly. Right. Yeah. Volume is the key. It's volume, um, right. Yeah. Especially, and we, we run lean. There's no mm-hmm. doubt that most of our centers oh, run, right. run very yeah. lean. 
You also talked about uh, collecting money up front. Can you talk a little bit about that, the importance of it? I think we all understand it, but sometimes we just have to be reminded mm-hmm. again. Yeah, I think for me, making sure that everyone in the ASC is doing the eligibility, and eligibility has become automated recently, where you get a green light if the patient's you know subscriber ID lights up and it takes your plan, everything's great, but you actually have to read the report, and mm-hmm. the report will tell you though has it deductible or an out of pocket or a copay. That information has to get back into your system. Somebody has to calculate it against a fee schedule to find out how much they actually owe. And it should be, um, if not within five to ten dollars of what they're actually going to get on their EOB. That's the beauty of an ASC. You know what you're contracted with every single payer to get, and that there is no surprise. Right. There should never be a surprise to a patient. And I like to look at that example of saying if the average out of pocket for a patient is anywhere from five hundred to seven hundred dollars, and you do thirty cases a day. Are you collecting that much money? Because if you're not, then you're not doing your job. Right. And you made the point, too. If you don't collect it up front, the chance of you collecting at the end is very, is, is quite a yeah, bit less. Yeah, and, and people just these days, they think when they get a, they get an EOB and that means nothing to them, right? It says this is not a bill, so they throw it away. Right. But then when they get your bill, they think this means nothing right. to me, and they throw it away. And the hard thing about, especially um, in ophthalmology or any surgery, you have the professional fee bill that's going to the patient. You know, you have that EOB for his side of the surgery or, or her side of the surgery and then you have your copay and deductible for that and they always think it's a duplicate bill yeah i just paid this mm-hmm. that's why you should always collect up front on the surgery center side because um usually surgery centers are more um, they bill faster and they're more efficient at billing they have less turnover in their business office staff hopefully right. knock on wood and so we're getting hit with that deductible first because we're billing the claim first right right so that's why it's so important to read the eligibility reports you actually made a great comment, too, about about if you have to send out an awful lot of statements, then you probably somebody's not doing their job. I thought that was a very uh, good statement. Yeah, that um, that came out of our uh, the reference that I put on our Taj Mahal client, you know, a very... You have one, too, apparently. <laughs> yeah, beautiful <laughs> Don't client. Don't we all? <laughs> um, just the prettiest facility we've ever been to, the largest. And yeah. um, they prided themselves on the practice side for getting the eligibility, <laughs> but they never did it on the ASC side. They, yeah. they didn't do it, and right. they didn't. They collected any only the premium items up front. And um, when I finally got through and sat down with billing, I said, so how do you collect this money? And they said, oh, we send statements. And I said, so you send <laughs> statements every week? Right, right. And she's like, yeah. And I said, about how many? And she said, oh, anywhere from like 100 to 150 statements. Wow. And, you know, I, I think that... If you're attached to a clinic, there's a lot of this um, hope and you hope and pray that you're going to see that patient again and you're going to continue to have a relationship with them. Right. So they're going to pay you. Right. So if you're not attached to a clinic, hopefully you never think that way, right? Especially if you're ophthalmology, you have two eyes. You're never yeah. coming back. That's right. <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> you, know, um, you might, but yeah. you know, I don't feel like patients feel like they're obligated to pay you. Right. So sending a statement is not ideal, and that's a good way to audit an ASC pretty quickly is how many statements do you send a month? Right. You know, what's your volume of that? How many statements do you send a month? Thank you so much, Nancy. It's been a well pleasure done. speaking to you. It's nice. Thank Again, you. thank you for having yeah. another accountant on the show. It's oh, nice yeah. to get you up here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. All right. 
So far, our last section, one of the attendees, Sarah Malinak, uh, and I go way back, actually. Mm-hmm. I helped her get her first job. And we thought it would be kind of interesting to uh, have the perspective of one of the attendees yes. talk about at least two of the sessions that she attended. So we did have an opportunity to speak to uh, two of the speakers, uh, Donna Cardillo, who is the, uh, she's known as the inspiration nurse, and she did that session on passionate leadership, Soaring to New Heights. And we uh, we did record a, an interview with her, which mm-hmm. we will dedicate an entire episode to, or at least a focus segment to, yeah. on an upcoming episode. And then I did have an opportunity to speak to uh, Stephen Harden, who is the founder and chairman and CEO of Life Wings. He's a pilot, just retired from uh, Federal Express. Uh, and uh, we're going to try to get him on a future episode mm-hmm. also. But to that end, when we spoke to Sarah, uh, she spoke about two of the sessions in particular. This one, Feel the Fear and Say It Anyway, Managing Difficult Conversations to Foster a Culture of Safety. And then she also talked a little bit about the session on human resources. Now, I should point out that we did interview her during the conference. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then um, something happened, probably user error, and we lost <laughs> that interview. So she graciously agreed on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, mm-hmm. to re-record that session. And she was so good. She was excellent. Speaking with us. And she actually, as you'll hear, um, she's not a nurse. Right. She's an administrator. So she had come to see if it would be a worthwhile thing to send her nurses to, her right. nurse leaders next year. And she was definitely impressed. And she got a lot out of it herself. She did, very much so. And uh, so we do have to apologize. We had to uh, use a telephone to mm-hmm. talk to her. Uh, so the quality is not quite uh, normal. Hopefully in post, we're able to uh, improve the quality a little bit. But uh, let's listen to that interview. So this is John Gailey and Sue. We're back at the studio and we have Sarah Malinak on the phone. Uh, Sarah, we uh, recorded during the conference and then somehow due to technical difficulties, that recording was lost. So you have been so gracious as to uh, take our phone call and re-record it. So hopefully we can all remember everything we (laughs) talked about there. Um, No problem. So how are you doing down in New Jersey, by the way? Is it snowy down there too? No, no. It's actually very nice out. A little chilly, but... But not snowing, thank God. <laughs> we came back. It was uh, they they warned us about a snowstorm, but uh, we came back. It wasn't so bad after all. But uh-huh. so, That's good. Uh, Sarah, you and I go way back to uh, days you were working for a facility in Teaneck, I believe, when we uh, we hired you in, in my former life, and now you've your two facilities beyond that right now. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, correct. Um, so actually, you gave me my first shot at becoming an ASC administrator. You had the confidence, you know, and took a chance on a young woman that hadn't run a facility before. So I appreciate that very much, and I'll never forget that. Um, Actually, right now, I am running a six OR, four procedure room, ophthalmology surgery center located in Westbury, New York. We are one of the, if not the, largest ophthalmology surgery centers in the country. We do about 25,000 procedures per year and have a hundred surgeons on staff. So it's very busy and very different from my days at TNEC Surgical Center. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were there when, uh, during the startup of uh, TNEC. So uh, I was, and yeah. I love that, that aspect of the ASC world. Yeah. Well, welcome on the podcast. And, and can you tell us a little bit about why, cause you're not a nurse. You're, you're like me, you have an administrative background. Can you Correct. tell our listeners a little bit of why you went to this conference, which is billed as a nursing leadership conference? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, since it was the first year that they held this conference, 
I went to see if it would be useful for me to send my staff next year. So I just wanted to get further information. I wanted to see what type of speakers they had and what the content was and then decide if this would be something that I would want to send my nursing leadership staff to next year. And I can definitely say that it's worth it. I thought the content was excellent. I thought the speakers were fantastic. And Regina really put on a good conference. So I commend her for that. What do you think made it so special? What was it that uh, really stood out for you? I think it was the speakers. It was Regina, for sure. Regina and Nancy, you know, they, they did an awesome job. Right. But also the camaraderie in the room. Yeah. I mean, especially on the last day, I saw young leaders who were struggling and feeling very, very overwhelmed. And the more seasoned leaders in the room, including myself, you know, we were very supportive and, you know, giving redirection and, and remembering the days that we were we were there. We were young and you know, didn't have the background that we did. And I just to see the support in the room was amazing to me. I saw, you know, people come together, people support these young leaders, you know, giving their business cards and saying, please call me if you, if you need help. I just, that really stuck out to me. I really was impressed by that. And to your end, I think that's something that's important for our listeners to understand, uh, especially those that perhaps are not allowed out of their facility that often. <laughs> and of course, right. we know that owners are, are listening too, that, uh, that what you pointed out is exactly why people should mm-hmm. be going to these conferences, that while the speakers were fantastic, the interaction with other individuals uh, you know, that they meet along the way will, will definitely help their career. So absolutely. Absolutely agree. So to that end, I agree with you. I think one of the best uh, sessions was uh, on the second day. It was called Feel the Fear and Say It Anyway, Managing Difficult Conversations to Foster a Culture of Safety. It was put on by Stephen Harden, who is a uh, an airline pilot with Federal Express, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he had just retired from there. But he has been consulting with healthcare organizations for a long time, speaking specifically about how to develop a culture of of quality, basically, mm-hmm. of trying to... Uh, Accountability right, and right. kind of watching each other and helping the whole team be better as a team. Right. So we thought we would talk about that session and another one a little bit later. But uh, so what were your big takeaways from that session? The biggest takeaway was that you cannot, even as a young leader, as a seasoned leader, you cannot be afraid to speak up when you know that something is not right. I know that surgeons can be intimidating, you know, maybe even your director of nursing or your administrator can be intimidating, but you cannot allow that to stop you from saying what you in your mind know is the right thing to say or do. And I also took away from that, that me as an administrator, I need to be there to support my staff in these Mm -hmm. difficult discussions. Like I said, surgeons, the perception of surgeons is, you know, that that they can be difficult. But I think that in the end, they will respect you more when you speak up and they know the reason why you're speaking up is to protect them as well as the center. I think they'll have more respect for, for you in the end if you do speak up. And the session was uh, really a very much interactive 
uh, session. So it was two and a half hours long. And during it, he took frequent breaks to have the tables interact with each other. Tell us a little bit about uh, the interactions that you had with your uh, table mates. And as you said, some of them had, you know, varying levels of experience compared to yourself. Uh, how do you feel that went and, and what type of interaction occurred? And can you just describe some of, or give a couple examples of, of what was done during those sessions? Yes. Um, when we were doing our assertive statements, I noticed that some may not have had such a strong, I don't, I'd say backbone. And I didn't see the, the culture in their center changing. One instance in particular was someone in my group who worked with surgeons that were poor citizens of the center and had been kicked out of multiple hospitals in their area. Yeah. And, and this leader felt that the culture in that center was a zero. Um, right. You know, if your culture is a zero, you have to, you have to look at yourself also and say, and I think Stephen Harden actually said this as well. How, how did I let this happen? Right. How do I let this continue? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that was a big takeaway. And this was not a, this was not a new leader. This was a, you know, a leader who had at least 10 years of experience. Um, so I think that as a leader, you have to be involved in changing that culture. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. And to sit there and say, I, you know, they're the owners or I don't, I can't, you know, talk to the, the physicians, the surgeons, they're nasty. That's just not an answer. Right. And you know, Stephen, Harden was talking about a specific example he had seen at one of his centers, or it may have been a hospital, where the surgeon walked into the OR in street clothes, and nobody said anything. He was there for a little while, and he seemed like a very friendly, open <laughs> doctor, right. but nobody said anything until he walked out, and then the nurses looked at each other and said, oh, why, why would he do that? Yeah. And he was just saying, it should have been more, why did we let him do this? Why didn't anybody speak up and say something? Right, exactly. Um, and, and that is just a very good point. You, you have to take ownership. Yeah. And, and I also think that what Stephen said about cross-checking each other is another good point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not to be a tattletale or it's not to think you know better than someone. It's to work as a team and to have each other's backs. And I think that cross-checking is a good thing. And, and when it comes to patient safety and quality, that's the only way that it should be looked at. It shouldn't be looked at, you know, somebody trying to undermine anyone. It's just working as a team so we have the best outcomes. And I love that he gave examples and had people practice because all of us know what we should do. We know we should speak up. We know we should approach our coworkers if we see something that we're uncomfortable about. But then we dwell on it and think about how should we say this. We don't want to offend anybody. And then the moment passes and, and we haven't really helped anything. So he gave us really concrete tools and step-by-step of how to construct the statement so that it won't be offensive, but it'll just be very clear and and here's my concerns and and here's what we should do about it. And he had people practice it because the more you practice it, the more you're likely to do it in that moment. I think it was a very effective uh, teaching tool. Mm -hmm. I did as well. I actually plan, I was thinking about it today, I plan to bring this type of exercise to my next staff meeting at the end of the month. Excellent idea. And we had talked a little bit, too, about uh, Sue, uh, who always comes up with these great drill ideas, uh, was talking about how you could probably turn this into almost an internal disaster drill, mm-hmm. how to handle this type of a situation and uh, model during the drill, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the conversations that the individuals would have with the physician to make sure that the proper intervention occurred. 
Yeah, because not just Absolutely. how they're framing it, but also making sure that the people are receiving it okay, because that's going to set the standard for whether this continues. Right. And I think another important point is that, you know, when you're doing this drill or training or whatever the case may be, that the staff understand that you, as the leadership mm-hmm. of the center, have their back. Right. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And to that end, uh, he made a, a number of very specific uh, recommendations. One one suggestion was changing the policy to require that cross-check and to require employees to speak up. In other words, not making an, an option, mm-hmm. making sure that they understand that it is not uh, just something that they should do. It's something that they have to do. Yes, and I agree with that. And he also recommended putting it in the yearly evaluation mm-hmm. and the job description. Yes. And I think that's a great idea because – then it takes the whole question out of it. It's it's part of their job. It's part right. of their responsibility. And then, you know, yearly you're able to give them feedback. And I think another good point that he made was also thanking them when they when they come forward and speak up. Right. Yeah, he even put um, showed an example of a card that they would post and say, you know, we appreciate such and such speaking up when she saw this concern. And, you know, whether it turns out to be a valid concern or not, Right. You have to show your appreciation so that that will continue. Absolutely. And I think everybody needs to understand that it's not only speaking up about surgeons, speaking up about your peers and your right. your colleagues and your mm-hmm. administration. I mean, I love the accountability factor. And if I'm doing something that someone doesn't feel is right, I would welcome them to bring mm-hmm. that up to me. Yeah, very yep. good point. And then they also, he kind of finished by talking about uh, revising the mentoring and onboarding program to make sure that that is also part of the culture. Yes, and I agree with that. I think mentoring is a great thing in you know, so many different ways, not just as it relates to this topic, but as part of the annual training and the initial onboarding, I think that that is going to set the tone right from the beginning. So, Sarah, given that you're going back on Monday to your place of business, uh, what are your action plans based upon uh, this session? Uh, My action plan was to look at implementing an escalation policy, definitely training the staff, training the surgeons. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in person as a, a huge lecture as it relates to the surgeons because I know they're busy. It could be you know, just a simple email to say, you know, I went to a conference, this is what I took away from it, and this is what I'm implementing. So everybody's on the same page. And also revising my job descriptions and the annual review to include this information. Mm-hmm. Right. And to that point, I don't think we actually mentioned the escalation policy, but that is another policy. In addition to a changing the policy to cross-check and speak up, uh, he suggested having an escalation policy and training the staff, of course, as to uh, what the escalation protocol was if uh, the staff member did not get uh, the proper satisfaction or didn't get a proper response from the, the provider. Absolutely. And, you, and I think to your point was also that you have to train the people that are a part of the escalation policy mm-hmm. so they don't just, you know, they don't get a phone call and say, I don't know what you want me to do. I'll talk to you later. Right. Exactly. Uh, another session that you went to that unfortunately I missed was the human resources best practices for ASC nurse leaders. And you did have a couple observations about that session that was put on by Jason Ross, who is a partner with Higgs, Fletcher and Mac. He talked a lot about the anatomy of an employee lawsuit. And it was interesting because the different classes and the protected classes can fit anyone's narrative if they're looking to to bring a lawsuit right down to hostile working environments. Um, And to his point, 
everything should be documented, which I think that was the biggest thing that I took out of the course and that anybody who was there should have taken out of. It's hard to have these discussions with employees, um, you know, but you have to document. Documentation is key. It can, it can save a lot of time and effort, you know, in the future if a lawsuit were to be brought against the facility. He also gave a very good and interesting example of an employee that he's an attorney. He represents a lot of big box stores. An employee would have a pattern, so to speak, of calling OSHA whenever she felt her job was in jeopardy. So she mm-hmm. would call OSHA because the toilet was wiggly or the the water fountain wasn't high enough or, or things like that. When in reality, she was caught on camera misscanning items. Um, she was a yeah. cashier. So the company finally wound up letting her go. Um, and it did, you know, go to court and they actually wound up winning. But, you know, I think that's how employees set things up. They, you know, they'll make a claim if they, not a claim, but they'll, you know, come forward and say, so-and-so is doing this to me when they know their job is in jeopardy. Right. Mm-hmm. So they, they feel that it puts them in that protective class. So maybe acting quickly, but fairly, I guess, but if you have concerns about an employee, it's important not to ignore them. Right. And, and, to, and of yes. course, document. Document mm-hmm. as though you're mm-hmm. documenting a medical record. Yep. Absolutely. Documentation is key. But yes, to your point, also acting swiftly is also another very valid point. Um, you know, if someone's not doing the job that you hired them to do, you do have to act on that. And mm-hmm. his point was that you can't be worried that they're going to file a lawsuit because anybody could file a lawsuit at any time. Mm-hmm. Right. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was great to see you both again. Same here. Thank you. So again, Sue and I would like to thank Sarah for that uh, wonderful interview and for her patience with our technical problems. <laughs> Sue, I, again, it was a fantastic conference, and there was a quote that they had, which I think encapsulated the whole uh, conference, if you want to read it. Sure. This is by Brene Brown in Dare to Lead. As you think about your own path to daring leadership, remember Joseph Campbell's wisdom. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Own the fear, find the cave, and write a new ending for yourself, for the people you're meant to serve and support, and for your culture. Choose courage over comfort, choose whole hearts over armor, and choose the great adventure of being brave and afraid at the exact same time. Thank you. So I would like to uh, thank a number of people that were uh, very helpful for us uh, in uh, doing these recordings. Courtney Leonis, who uh, handled all the technical aspects of the conference and helped us to uh, make sure that we had proper facilities to be able to do the podcast. My friend Deb Stitchcomb, who uh, told us about this nursing conference and Mm -hmm. asked if we would become a, a sponsor for it. And of course... Regina Bohr, whose vision put this whole thing together. So again, thank you for allowing us to be at the conference and to be a sponsor. And uh, we've already signed up for next year. So I'm hoping they have one since we've (laughs) already signed up. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again. And please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. 
The SC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all the rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsors. First, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, one of the nation's leading regulatory compliance and financial oversight firms. For a free consultation, contact John Gailey today at 585-594-1167 or through email at info at ah-strategies.com. And Eden Group Development, which publishes ASC Regulatory Compliance Series, the ASC industry's leading books, including the Survey Guide for ASCs, a guide to the CMS conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines for ambulatory surgery centers, and Ambulatory Surgery Center Governance, a guide for ambulatory surgery center owners and governing body members. These must-have books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble or directly from the publisher at reg-books.com. That's R-E-G-B-O-O-K-S dot com. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.